Hello and welcome to the Friday podcast from the Scottish Independence Podcasts. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Life podcast team and with my co-host Marlene Halliday and our special guest Ruth Ritchie, we're going to be looking at the whole question of borders. Is it going to be hard? Is it going to be easy? Let's find out. Welcome everyone. This is the August edition now of Maybe's Eye and we're going to be talking to Ruth Ritchie of the Shared Borders, Shared Future campaign group. Ruth lives down in the borders, on the Scottish side of the borders, so she knows what the realities are. We've got some clips from a selection of experts on different issues to do with the borders to try and get a feel for just how difficult or easy is it going to be. But to set the scene, we're going to start with the First Minister who was launching the series of papers, Building a New Scotland, and inevitably she was asked about borders. Here's what she said. There will be a hard border across this island in the south of Scotland, between the south of Scotland and the north of England. There just has to be, because that will be the EU border, and won't have very significant and potentially damaging implications for the south of Scotland. I indicated in my opening remarks that uh, one of the papers we will publish in this series will be on uh, European Union membership. We will also, maybe the same paper, maybe two separate ones, on trade. Um, and as part of that, of course, we will confront uh, the implications of Brexit, which of course is not something the Scottish Government has chosen, but does, you're right to say, um, present uh, different challenges around uh, these issues. And of course, we're in, uh, I shouldn't say we here, because it is the UK Government, is in a, a deep mess over the Northern Ireland Protocol with lots of very damaging implications because it has never levelled uh, with people in Northern Ireland or indeed the rest of the UK about the implications. Now, I think it's important to say, uh, and I'm sure I've said this to you before, that we're not dealing here with issues about the, the movement of people, the common travel area. I don't think there is anybody, certainly nobody with any credibility who would argue that Scotland would not uh, remain within the common travel uh, area. Uh, but the issues in terms of regulatory and customs issues around goods, we've, we've got to work out how that uh, operates in a way that would fulfil the requirements that would be on us in terms of European Union membership. And remember, the big advantages and benefits of European Union single market membership, a, a marketplace seven, eight times the size of the UK, uh, enormous potential to grow our trade and to grow our exports. Um, we need to uh, set out how we would deal with that in a way that isn't damaging to the south of Scotland uh, and isn't damaging to businesses. Um, I believe, again, and I, I, I will no doubt make this point on many occasions, not just today but throughout this debate, uh, much of the mess the UK Government is in is because of a lack of being honest with people and a lack of doing any planning for this. Just about every reputable expert who say that there will be checks on goods going from England and Wales to Scotland and there will be a trade border. What I'm saying is not that these challenges don't exist, but these challenges can be managed in a way that doesn't uh, present disadvantages to our businesses. Uh, and of course, what the benefits of that situation are is the ability to trade freely within a market that is seven, eight times bigger than the UK. Will you be frank with the Scottish I people and say frank. there will be a trade um, border? I think I've said very clearly there will be customs and regulatory issues on trade if we are in the single market. I think the benefits of being in the single market outweigh uh, the challenges there.
What did you think of that, Marlene? Was it a surprise? They leapt on it straight away? Well, I, it was no surprise that um, she's going to have to answer questions on, on the border. It's obviously going to be a hot topic um, once the, the campaign kind of broadens out and all gets going. I mean, it, it was last time, but I think particularly, of course, this time because Britain is now no longer part of the EU. So, all, I mean, admittedly, it is more complex. But what did I think of her answer? Uh I think I think she could have had a better answer than that. I mean, she sounded defensive to me and, and I understand why, you know, she talked a lot about, well, this is only happening because of Brexit, which Scotland didn't vote for. I mean, of course she she'd say that, but I just kind of felt she was on the back foot with it a bit. And and I'm I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, tell them about the common travel area. Tell them about modern borders how you know a, a modern border is depends a lot on technology and, and big data tell them come on tell them about that so first minister if you're watching you have to practice your answer to those questions about the borders let's start with some expert input then and these are just a series of very short clips but they're dealing with just different aspects of the border and we're going to start with a clip from bill austin now bill sadly no longer with us bill was an expert in customs and borders and establishing borders in war-torn countries like sierra leone and he's such a loss to us because of his knowledge as much as anything else here we have bill explaining what a border is what do we mean by that as a benchmark no better place to start than the eu's definition of integrated border management because at the end of the day whether scotland's in eu or efta we're going to have to play by EU rules. So it makes sense for everybody to have something to hang their hats on in terms of where we want to be. The EU definition of integrated borders management, or IBM, is that national and international coordination amongst all relevant authorities and agencies involved in border security and trade facilitation is to establish effective, efficient, and coordinated border management at the external EU borders in order to reach the objective of open, keyword open, but well-controlled and secure borders. What kind of strikes me listening to that definition is just the emphasis on cooperation, you know, on using, on sharing data, on using data to facilitate, you know, movement of goods across borders. It's the cooperation that's, that strikes me in that. And that's just what you'd want. I mean, it's what you'd hope any kind of two neighbouring countries or maybe EU and non-EU uh, borders, that's what they'd be striving to, to make happen. Um, and yet from the unionist side here in, in Britain, the sort of British unionist side, not wanting Scotland to be independent. Actually, all, all you get is you'll not be able to do that. You'll not, we'll stop you doing yeah. this. You won't have markets. <laughs> so our next short clip is from Professor Katie Hayward from the University of Belfast. And this was in a discussion by an organisation called UK and a Changing Europe. Katie has just authored a report with our very own Professor Nicola McEwen from the University of Edinburgh looking specifically at Scotland's borders after independence. So we're going to have clips from both Katie and Nicola to explain key parts, but we will give you the link to the report in the notes so you can go and read the whole thing for yourself. It's obviously much bigger than we can do justice with in, in a programme this, of this length. Here's Katie to give us just an overview of the principles of border management. Three fundamental principles of border management. To know what's crossing a border, 
that it meets the criteria for crossing and entry, and that it can be stopped if it doesn't. These three are interlinked. The more regulatory divergence there is between the two jurisdictions, the less sure you can be that a good meets the criteria for entry. The more data you have on what is crossing, the less you need to have at the border controls. What is needed in practice can be summarized as four things. First, information. It needs to be submitted to authorities and processed and analyzed and responded to. Second, this requires resources. Just listen, for example, to the complaints of businesses about the time and training needed to complete customs paperwork. Third, it requires infrastructure. Uh, more than that, it requires space. The space uh, we now know is needed for lorry parking, space for proper facilities for the drivers who are waiting, uh, space for inspection of refrigerated goods, etc. Last but not least, good border management entails communication between officials and the multiple agencies involved, between authorities on either side of the border, between governments and officials, and between government departments and traders, port authorities, hauliers and border crossers. She just brings it out very clearly. The more data you have about the goods going backwards and forwards, and the clearer you are about your customs regulations, the less you need to actually do at the border. I mean, it's just straightforward. I mean, she's saying in her own way what Bill says in the other yes. clips. The next clip we've got is Professor Nicola McEwen. She's talking a little bit more about borders, plural, because of course it's not just the England-Scotland border, there's a lot of other borders involved. We are quite specifically talking about borders, plural. There's the border with the EU, which would open up again, which would provide um, free movement for businesses, workers, students, researchers, um, and remove the restrictions um, and barriers that were introduced by Brexit that we can imagine would create new opportunities, new supply chains, new labour market uh, opportunities as well. But there is a proviso that we do include in the report, and that's that for trade going from Scotland to the rest of the EU, for now, most of that crosses through um, England. There's also Scotland's border with Northern Ireland, which, because Northern Ireland, under the terms of the protocol, is within the EU single market for goods, um, trade between Scotland and Northern Ireland has become a bit more difficult um, in the context of Brexit. Under our scenario, that would be easier as well. But it's the land border that is, tends to be the focus in these debates, the land border between Scotland and England, which would become an international border between Scotland and the UK, and an external border of the European Union. And that would impose obligations on the Scottish Government to ensure that all goods and services entered in the EU uh, via that land border would be eligible for entry and meet EU standards to protect the integrity of the EU single market. In practice, Katie talked about the kinds of things that would have to happen. We make a distinction between at the border checks um, and behind the border checks. At the border checks, we are talking about a mixture of infrastructure physical inspection facilities and technology. Probably worth reflecting on the nature of the border between Scotland and England. It's 154 kilometres or 96 miles. There are around 25 crossing points, roads. Um, most of those are minor. Um, there's one major trunk road, uh, which we assume would be used for customs uh, processing, Glasgow to Carlisle uh, route. 
uh, there's another three uh, trunk roads, although I think only one of those is a trunk road on the English side. In terms of the practicalities of managing a border, because so much of the border physically is rivers or hills or nature reserves, the practicalities of it are more manageable than they might be in some other contexts. But it still requires physical checks, it still requires regulatory checks, and in particular, it will require uh, more behind the border checks. Such a great wee clip to have found. It's a good lead in to what our next one, isn't it? Because we're going to go back to Bill. You know, Nicola was saying, well, you know, there's all sorts of different things at the border, bits of it are river and there's, you know, trees and, and a couple of big roads, but lots of little lanes. Bill's now going to talk about customs because customs not the same as borders. Uh, and in terms of inter international customs controls, it's accepted across the planet that customs controls are carried out wherever the respective government wishes them to. That doesn't necessarily mean at the junction of the M6 and the M74. If the Scottish government say within the EU rules that we must comply with, then we will carry out those customs checks at the trader's premises when it arrives. And let's say the trader's premises is in Ullapool. Why would we not? Then equally, we may actually be a wee bit more formalised. And Germany, for example, is very swept up with an inland clearance depot system, where within the country, let's say somewhere on the M8 between Glasgow and Edinburgh, let's say somewhere between Glasgow and Inverness, that we have inland clearance depots where when the vehicle crosses from England into Scotland, it goes to one of those locations and the customs controls are carried out there. For many, many people, customs controls equal borders. They don't. They never have done. That's a really important distinction that he's just made, isn't it? Customs controls is not the same as a border, although in many people's minds it will be, but it isn't. We can have customs controls wherever the government wants its customs controls. Back to Nicola McEwen again now to explain about the common travel area and why it's in the UK's interest to do that as well as in our interest. What is in the UK government's interest and that might be shaped by the politics of independence, how bitter uh, things are, how the relationship is between the two administrations, but the rest of the UK trades with Scotland too. The rest of the UK population moves, moves freely within Scotland too, so there would be interests and pressures, I think, um, coming from that side to try to ensure that there wasn't overly hard border that would affect the interests of businesses on the other side um, of the border as well. What it wouldn't require, uh, on, in our view, is passport checks, um, because our assumption is that an independent Scotland in the European Union would be able to negotiate itself out of the border aspects of the Schengen Agreement and justify remaining uh, within the common travel area as Ireland uh, does already. And CTA, the common travel area, is recognised within the EU treaties. But it's important to recognise its limitations. EU citizens 
um, living in Scotland wouldn't necessarily be able to access the rights within the common travel area because these are rights granted to UK and Irish citizens, rights to live, work and access services and to travel across borders for business purposes. The CTA also doesn't really help with services uh, arrangements on which the Scottish economy relies very heavily. Uh, you can access for business purposes, but it doesn't extend all of the free movement rights um, for services. No mutual recognition of qualifications, for example. And it'll be interesting to know how this is being worked on and developed and evolving in the UK and Irish uh, relationship, um, because I do think that will be insightful for us. Uh, that was interesting, uh, Nicola, talking about, you know, it's not completely straightforward, the common travel area and, and, and things like qualifications and things there that would need to be evened out. But um, Ruth Ritchie, who's our guest in the second half of the programme, Ruth touches on that um, from the point of view of the realities of living on the border. And For our last uh, clip from the, the experts, uh, we have Nicola McEwen again making the point that we can learn lessons from Brexit. And if ever there was an example of how not to do something, Brexit is it. What we learn from the Brexit process is the importance of acknowledging the challenge and being prepared for it. So ensuring that there are systems in place, ensuring that there is awareness and communication um, and support uh, for, uh, for anyone who would be affected, um, but also time. So Brexit happened at pace in the end. Um, a lot of businesses were not prepared, were not given appropriate guidance. And there isn't really any need for that kind of rush. So um, my advice would be that if you are going to do this, take the time that you need to get the systems in place. It's really good listening to those short clips with, with, with those experts. I find it really useful just, you know, getting my head around, you know, the question of it, the border, is it really as a, much of a problem as the unionists are, are going to claim it uh, to be? So that was really good. And now we're going to talk to um, Ruth Ritchie, who is part of the team that set up Shared Borders, Shared Futures. And I'm really pleased to have got Ruth on onto the programme because we tried to do it before um, the COVID um, pandemic and for various reasons, we never managed it. So it's great to have her. But also in moving into this interview, what we're doing is moving to, well, the realities. And Ruth's going to be talking very much from the point of like the lived experience. What's it like when you live near the English-Scottish border? Well, Ruth is very definitely of the view that there are big opportunities there for the Scottish borders and uh, the Friesen Gallery, all those, that area. So here she is. Welcome, Ruth Ritchie. Ruth is from Yes Annandale, Yes Lockerbie. What is life like living on a border? How often do you cross it? What do you cross it for? What's the reality of, of the sort of day-to-day -day impact of it in your life? So for some people, it's going off to their work because you're working across the border. And of course, it's both ways. You know, lots of people are coming our way as well as going the other way. So you've got people who are crossing for their business daily, people whose businesses are cross-border anyway. So you might be based on one side, but your customers are on the other. And uh, you've got people who are crossing for leisure, people crossing for shopping. The, the major shopping centre for here really is, is to go to Carlisle. People who are crossing for particular services that you can't necessarily get on this side. And 
you know, the obvious friends and family, you want to go and see people who are on the other side. Yeah, of course, of course. And it's both ways as well, isn't it? You know, there'll be people coming into um, our side of the border. That sort of day-to-day -day practicality of even things like getting your car serviced or going to the cinema or stuff, just day-to-day -day things that we take for granted. I think that kind of thing, perhaps people are thinking they would somehow lose, but but they wouldn't, would they? What, what do we think the position would be about day-to-day -day life? In terms of things that you're crossing the border for, if it's something which is only available on the other side of the border, then first of all, there isn't really going to be anything much to stop you from still going and doing or having or being that thing because we have the right to travel. I don't see the common travel area changing um, after independence. So we will still have the, the right to, to work, to live, to travel without showing a passport. You've got the right to study, to access healthcare um, and to vote in some elections. Um, and that's not just Scotland, England, that's Wales, that's Northern Ireland, Ireland, the Channel Islands and Isle of Man. So actually physically going shouldn't make much difference. But if there was a problem for any reason, if you felt uncomfortable for any reason about going across that border, then any service which is currently being offered only on the other side would have the option and probably the benefit of now being offered on our side as well. And um, mm. there's bound to be incentives to having your business starting up on our side as well. And for every customer who's currently going across the border, they still need whatever it is that they're going across the border for. So that mm. potential is still there. It just needs someone to pick it up. That's a good point and it can create demand on, on our mm -hmm. side. And I suppose we, we don't know at this stage, well, there are a lot of things we don't know, <laughs> but we don't know how quickly we'll get back into the EU, for example. And if we do, what level of EU will we get back into? Will we start off with EFTA or, or what? My understanding is that the common travel area would have to be negotiated as part of the EU accession because essentially we have to get some kind of opt out of Schengen in order to then have our common travel area recognised. So we don't really know what the what the rules would be if we are in the EU. And so that border then is an EU border. Anytime you hear that discussed at the moment in you know, press questions or or anything, it's always positioned as if it's a really negative thing. And this hard border that they talk about as if it's, you know, the Berlin Wall with Checkpoint Charlie and Alsatians is probably not what it's going to be like. So have you any thoughts on the positive aspects of that kind of border? I think the first thing is to think about how we perceive words. So when someone says hard border, yes, you do tend to think of a physical border and you tend to think of the negatives. But if you think about something like a people border, then you just think about you know, people moving across the border and equally you've got customs borders and e-borders and technical borders and they're all different types of border. Just now we have got what I would call a hidden border. Um, right. It's almost in denial. It's mm -hmm. as if some people didn't want you to realise that we have two separate countries here and so it's not really highlighted. And yet, if you go down to the border, you will see people who are there and they're busy taking their pictures and they want to have one foot on one side and one foot on the other. In terms of the future, what we already have will probably be slightly more defined in as much as the changes that define 
being on one side to uh, on to the other. Even something as simple as your drink driving laws, you know, there's, there's a, a lower level on Scotland, on Scotland's side of the border than there is on England. Um, so you've got things which are already changing once you get to that border. Um, we may have other things which change once you get to the border, especially if we go back into the EU and we've got access to so much more, all the things that we've already lost. Um, but what we shouldn't see is much in the way of a physical change, at least not in a bad way. We may see really good physical change, such as better infrastructure. We may see a lot more businesses. We may see, um, with a bit of luck from the Scottish government, we may see um, some of the, I believe it's about 30,000 civil service jobs come into Dumfries and Galloway and the Scottish borders. We may see huge investment in facilities as we would find ourselves on the edge of Europe as well as on the border. So we may find that we get infrastructure investment, we may find that we get facilities investment from the EU as well to make the border uh, basically up to the standard of what you would expect from uh, a decent quality of country. The scare stories of crossing the border, for anyone who tells you you're not going to be able to cross because you're gonna to have to show your passport, we already know that you won't need to because of the common travel area. What you were saying about Schengen, Ireland, of course, is exempt from being part of Schengen, but it's part of the common travel area. So I don't see, I mean, I'm no expert, but I don't see a problem immediately arising when part mm. of the common travel area is already exempt from Schengen. We don't know, as with so many things, what the situation will be in terms of customs and the single market with England. We know that the passport's not a problem in terms of being checked. If you're an ordinary person going to your work, yes, there may be a need to check who comes in and out of the EU, or England may want to be knowing exactly who's coming from the EU into England. But if you look at some of the other European countries, I think Switzerland, local people have like a, a pass mm. in your window, which is read. Um, by the cameras so they can see who's coming backwards and forwards. Plus, if you've been on the motorways, you know that there are cameras on almost every single bridge as you go along. There's, there used to be a large number of them, particularly for watching traffic coming from Northern Ireland during the, the Troubles. And I'm fairly sure that a lot of those cameras are still there. So they, they're all capable of reading your number plates. If you, if you consider if you go and park somewhere that's got one of these private parking cameras, and they send you a picture of you in your car with a date and the time. You know, all these facilities are there. If you want to watch who's coming backwards and forwards across the border, you can. So why would you need to stop anybody? Yeah. It's different with goods. We, we want to make sure that things which are coming into the EU will comply with those, those uh, regulations. We want to ensure that everything will be good enough so that we can have a, a smooth access of things that we want to export to the EU. So you don't want something coming in that you're going to have to do something with. But I understand, and I am by no means an expert on this, but I understand that it's very, very feasible to complete all your customs, your excise and so on, your checks at the point that you pack up whatever it is that you're exporting and it's checked again at the point at which it's received. So apart from pulling over somebody as they're already doing to check, 
why would you need to check the goods? You think of the geography of where our border is and our main yes. centres are quite a long way away from it. Edinburgh, Glasgow, this yeah. whole central belt. You know, yeah. So why would you have a massive infrastructure just at the point you cross when all these and things are setting off from those places? That is a very good point, because if you look at the map, where are you going to put this infrastructure? The area around about, particularly on the south side of the border, our side, it's just floodland, it's merse and sea and river. You can look up pictures from a few years ago when they had some really, really bad floods. And there's, there is nowhere, you cannot build 10 lanes in order to take people off to check things. You simply couldn't do it within a few miles of the border, particularly on the English side. So where are they going to put this? Have a really good look at Google Earth and zoom in to the land around about Longtown because there is a military base there and I believe there's underground storage there. Um, underground storage that you might not want to disturb, which oh. may or may not be documented. And if you look to the west of Gretna, all that land along the shore was part of the munitions factory during um, the, the World War, you know, when, they, when they had the devil's porridge and they, and they made all the, the really, really nasty concoctions of things. All that land was part of that and it extended all the way along to Longtown. There are wee white dots on the map south of Eastrigs, between Eastrigs and Gretna. That's still military land with munitions storage, which apparently nobody knows what's in there. So if we are talking about digging up land to create places to check or to divert the motorway or any other ludicrous idea that somebody might come up with, we might want to have a look, a really good look at what the land has got, certainly on our side. I'm not familiar with the A1 side, but certainly on this side, which has got the biggest crossing, you, you have to consider the practicalities. You'd put an immense amount of work into making that area strong enough to support the, the traffic and the roads. You would have a huge amount of land to buy up. You'd probably have to take it right inland because you've only got the sea on the west side. You would also have to do all the compulsory purchase, all the planning. It would cost an absolute fortune and probably take decades if the Cumberland Gap has got anything to stand <laughs> as an example, which I think took about 30 years from inception to completion. Um, I don't see a London-based government spending that amount of money on poor old Cumbria. And if you look at other countries that have got borders with different regulations, they don't seem to have massive infrastructure at the actual point. And I was in uh, Canada a couple of years ago in Niagara, and you can see America over the river, and there's a bridge connecting the two. There isn't a 10-lane highway of checks <laughs> leading up to it. And Norway and, you know, the, the rest of the EU, they've got almost invisible borders. So, and Ireland is, is of course, the, the, a really good example for us these days. So, yeah, it's um, scaremongering, I think, on a huge scale to, to suggest that we're just going to have a massive walls or infrastructure across what are often single-lane roads as well, aren't they? I was looking in the paper the other day, there was an article from the guy who's in charge of the Edinburgh Festival bemoaning the fact that there's so many artists from Europe not able to come because of the issues they have with the UK's visa system. And I think we were talking at Dumfries about the, the possibility of having 
some kind of you know music festival or whatever on our side of the border go and tell yeah. us a bit more about you think because yeah. that sounded fabulous to me um i mean this is obviously it's my ideal and um unless the scottish government are listening and i hope that they are paying attention what i would do i would build first of all a border, a border visitor center i would celebrate all the 800 odd years of our history it would be a massive tourist attraction and easily accessible to the whole of the europeans plus you'd have the your, your people from the other parts of the world now flying into scotland because it's much more easy to then do europe once you're in scotland um, I would also construct a venue for, for artists, for shows, for concerts, for events, for precisely the reasons that you said. There are people who already can't or won't come and tour in Britain because of the, the problems of accessing here. Um, so if Scotland's in the EU, uh, you've got lovely, easy access to the rest of the 27 countries. You build a nice venue close to the border because we need that investment, we need those jobs, and it's a, a nice way of showing people what a good future we could have. So you build that facility, you provide not only jobs uh, and everything else that comes with it, of course, um, for the local community, but you know we, we've still got family and friends and neighbours in the country next door, and we don't want our family not to be able to see a band that they love. So why wouldn't they come with the nice, easy to, to access common travel area, spend a couple of nights in our bed and breakfasts and our guest houses and our hotels and buying the food in our cafes and restaurants, visiting some of the other things that are here and going to that big venue and seeing something that they would love to see that they're currently prevented from doing so. What, what a fabulous thing to be able to do. Best of both worlds, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The other criticism that we hear or, or scarce story perhaps lobbed at us is this um this idea that 60 percent of our trade currently is with england and we would somehow lose all that as if trade isn't already a two-way thing why would we lose it but they wouldn't <laughs> a lot of the the trade that goes over the border is services rather than just goods what's your response when people talk about this we'll lose all this 60 percent of our trade again i am no economist however from a straightforward day-to-day -day, everyday person kind of point of view if i am going to go across to carlisle and spend my money i'm quite sure that you're still going to want that money if you are going to come and service my boiler for me from the other side i'm quite sure you're still going to want to charge me to service my boiler and if you don't somebody else will your business is and i hate to use the expression but cutthroat that yeah. if you do not provide what your customers want then somebody else will and that's a very local way of looking at it you would need an economist to talk to you about the whole economy of scotland but for for us as ordinary people if the person that you want to do something for you, to provide a service for you, if they choose to not do that, somebody else will open up and do it for us. And if you are a cross-border business already, particularly trades, we, we have a lot of trades who trade both sides of the border, it is in your benefit to do whatever you can do to maintain your customers. Plus, you may find that by being in the EU in Scotland, which I understand is what we'll probably be, or at least having accessible uh, EU benefits, you may find that you can acquire goods that you can't get through 
what would be mm -hmm. left of the UK, you might you might find that you've got access to funding or to staff that you cannot yeah. get in the UK. Um, so why you know why wouldn't you want to embrace that? Well, anybody that says that they don't want your business now because you're an independent country, you might want to rethink. Anyway, is that the kind of person that you want to do business with? Secondly, if it comes down to a wider point of the English government at the time, for whatever reason, deciding that they're not going to trade with Scotland, they might want to look at where their water comes from <laughs> and where their electricity comes from, where their gas and their oil comes from. And they might also want to start looking around the south coast for where they're going to put those great big nasty polluting nuclear submarines that we have up off the west coast. Nobody wants to start getting into unpleasantries because, you know, we have friends and family. We have people that we want to have a really good relationship and we want them to come and see us for, for tourism and trade and for, for friendship. And we want to be able to do the same for them. It's in nobody's interest to create any friction, you know, that doesn't have to be to be there by regulation. And the Westminster government is perhaps not the most finger on the pulse, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not got the best understanding of the way things work up here. But the idea that they would try some kind of political point scoring and vindictiveness, which I can imagine they might, but the idea that the people who actually live both sides of the border would have any truck with that, you know, it just, it, it's ridiculous. And I think having that sort of day-to-day -day person going about their life perspective is really important. Because there are very much two levels because you've got your economic level where you're talking about countries and you're talking about international agreements and you're talking about having 27 countries backing us and us inheriting whatever it is that the EU has already got. But I don't know how many of us actually see that as a real thing because all you really want to know is can I go and visit my auntie Jean that lives in Manchester? Yeah. Or you know, can, can I go to the metro centre in, in Newcastle? You're not really bothered about the economy. You just want to know what's important to me is this, will I still be able to do it? And I think that's so important for us to, as individuals to kind of boil that down, what's really important to us and are we still going to be able to do it? Because ultimately we are all selfish. Yeah, and we are actually experiencing issues as a result of Brexit and us not being in it, which you would you would be able to fix. I mean, I, I live in Clackmannanshire and there are vacancies for all manner of jobs, bar work, restaurants, bus drivers were extremely short of, if anybody wants to be a bus driver, <laughs> now's the time. Um, you know, carers, cleaners, health service workers, teachers, all these things that are because of the, well, the restrictions and also the hostile environment that the, the UK government has put in. So once we're back in that single market for people, I would expect that a lot of those jobs are going to be hopefully filled by people coming from the, the EU as they always were, our tourist trade jobs. You know, there's so much that we could just almost with a magic wand overnight, we could fix a lot of these issues just by having that freedom again. Definitely. And bringing back some of the specialists that we have lost, reuniting our students in Europe and here, you know, regaining access to Erasmus, all the, the myriad of things that we have lost by not just not being part of the EU, the EU, but having such a destructive relationship that we currently seem to have. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. 
but yeah there's here too there are so many jobs which um, have been lost because our European friends have, have returned home to where they've come from in the first place because it's they, they just feel so so threatened I think but yeah we, we need to have that mix of people and culture and skills and to be able to share that back across to Europe as well you know, why should the younger generation be prevented from the the experiences and, and the benefits that we've been able to enjoy oh absolutely um, yeah it's just so wrong it would be wonderful to see all that come back thinking a bit about the politics of the border area i mean we just i think assume that it's a tory stronghold <laughs> um not least because there are that is where you if you're going to find a tory mp in scotland chances are it's going to be in the borders but that's not necessarily the case is it but we had an snp mp for galloway for quite a number of years but then they changed the regions and you've got galloway and western face and then you've got the really complex i'm pretty sure clydesdale tweet deal before Mundell, we had a Labour MP. Yes, we have had the last few elections. Um, we have been that horrible little blue smudge at the bottom. Um, but it's not always been like that. Plus, the last two or three elections, where there's been a Conservative MP, they've only been in by a relatively small percentage of the overall vote. So, you know, it's not a Tory stronghold. Um, and in all the elections, the SNP is the second position. The recent local council election the first past the post in terms of votes was the SNP candidate, I think in 10 out of 11 of the seats and the SNP stood a candidate in all 12 and won 11. Oh, well, that's pretty and good, isn't it? Joint lead with the council, which is good, mm -hmm. which we had in the previous one. To say that it is a Tory stronghold is unfair because it's not a stronghold but what we do have is first of all we have a large number of people who come from other parts of the UK to retire here for all the wonderful benefits like free prescriptions and uh, dental checks and personal care and all the rest of it that goes with it but you know you can't leave whatever is in your heart behind you when you move you tend to take a bit of that with you Equally, we do have people, um, we had quite a good um, showing for English Scots for yes. So people do recognise what they've come for and that if they don't protect that, it won't be here. That's an interesting one when people come here for those benefits and then it always mystifies me why they then vote against them so that we can all lose them. <laughs> why? Why would you do that? <laughs> but there, there may be a lack of education. People don't, even, even you know, our people who have been here all their lives don't know which government is responsible for which things and how they happen. So we, we really need to educate people more to understand what happens on this side of the border because of the Scottish government and what happens for other reasons. Plus, you know, a lot of people here have got very strong connections across the border. So that might be your family, it might be your social engagements, it might be your work. So when you are faced with scare stories and you're getting hammered with those through the mainstream media, but you're not seeing any alternative points of view or truth even for that matter. Yeah. It's very easy to become afraid. And you mentioned English Scots for yes there. Is there a kind of enclave of, of English Scots who are in favour of independence? Yes, I mean, the, if you go to any of the yes groups across from Trace and Gallagher, you will find English people. And um, some of them are running the, mm. the yes group. People know why they are here and why they came here and what makes all the things that they came here for. 
And it's so good as well to have people with English accents talk to local folk because it's not an anti-England thing. It's not an anti-English thing. It's purely a case of deciding what you think makes your country, what um, is important to you as part of that and what's the best way to achieve that. And for most of us, that's through the normal natural state of independence. Your Shared Borders, Shared Future website. And how did that come about? So it would be about 2018, we had a meeting which was made up of people rightly across from Dumfries and Galloway. Um, and we talked about upcoming arguments or issues or benefits for, for the next Indie Ref. And one of the things that we talked about was that the borders would be a big thing. But obviously to, to our part where we are, it's a big thing anyway, because that's really the main thing that people talk about. Even if they're discussing other um, sort of headline topics, it ultimately comes down to me and me crossing the border. So we decided that we would get together with some groups across the Scottish borders as well. And we had a small group of about six of us and we looked at all the questions that people asked us over the past years. So even as simple as, will I be able to walk my dog across the border after independence? Mm. Um, so we talked about currency, we talked about health, we talked about schools, we talked about jobs, about discrimination, about equality, about even things like if you have, maybe you have a, an arrangement to, to see a child that's on the other side of the border and people worried that they wouldn't be able to do that. So we've got all these questions, found the source of an answer, not necessarily the answer, because things are changing all the time. But uh, to give people, not the general public, but to campaigners, the opportunity to go, all right, my neighbour was saying to me that they're really worried about whatever the topic is. And then to be able to go to this site and go, oh, okay, she thinks that she's not going to be able to go shopping in Newcastle without changing her money. I mean, of course, we all know but the further south you go, the more you have to change your money anyway because they don't want your notes. Um, but to, to then provide a, a, a source, a sort of a, a dusty old bookshelf source of information that you could go to as an independence campaigner and say, right, I now know where the sources are for me to look at to find out how that information I can then turn to use for the person that's asked me the question. So it's not nice shiny exciting stuff because this stuff is is a bit tedious but it's for you as a campaigner to go how do i find out about that here's the source you may have to look for something slightly more up to date because right at the minute we've not been updating because things are changing so much but hopefully hopefully by the time we get around to have an independence referendum we should know what the final situation is with the eu and the uk post-brexit and also what the Scottish Government proposes. It's maybe not going to give you the answer you want, but it gives you the means to find the answer that you want. I thought it was an extremely useful resource, I must say, just, just looking through at the topics that you cover are many and varied, but also you have things like the, the beefed up common travel area agreement between UK and Ireland. And when you look at that and you look at the you know, the cooperation that's involved in pulling that together. The idea that you wouldn't also have that for Scotland, you know, it's just mm -hmm. ridiculous. And there, there it is in black and white, the agreement between the two parties for their mutual benefit. So I think there is an awful lot of scaremongering that we're going to have to wade our way through. I'm sure there'll be a, a suggestion that 
England will not want Scotland to be part of the common travel area, but they forget that they're not the only country in the common travel area. Um, and Ireland, who of course will be in the EU, hopefully with Scotland, um, I'm sure that Ireland would have something to say about changing the common travel area because it's not up to the English government to mm. decide who's in it. It's an agreement, not a dictatorship. For the majority of us in this area, the common travel area answers everything. So we're going to have Scotland and probably the whole island of Ireland in the EU, so we shouldn't have any problems. In fact, we should probably have a nice, easy passage for all our goods across the Irish connection. So they may lose any problems that Brexit may have brought just because we, we're probably operating in the same single market, uh, which would be good. Whoever is in power, power at the time, if you've got somebody with a bit of common sense about them, they'll go, you know what, we need to make a really good relationship with Scotland here. The, the benefits for, for the north of England as well, you know, they, they could be the sort of, I don't know, like the staging post for things coming out of the UK into the EU. So there's potential for the north of England to get a huge amount of investment as well, especially if England does decide that they, they, they want to check things in England. And if people want to cross the border on their European holiday, then, you know, what better to do than to travel down to, board, to the border and stay in a border area uh, place overnight? And you did, you did make a very important qualifier then when you said, if we had somebody with common sense at Westminster. Um, yes. That is by no means a given. <laughs> no. But, well, thank you so much for that. We've, we've covered a lot of different ground there. And I think the balance between things we don't know, but the possibilities are huge, aren't they? So um, thank you so much for sharing that with us. That was very interesting, wasn't it, to hear from Ruth, the, the, just the day-to-day -day reality of, of life on the border, and very positive about some aspects of it too. Yeah, and she's got some really good ideas, hasn't she, about hasn't how been, to yeah. you know, take advantage of Scotland being in the single market or, or maybe just the, e, the EEA, but at any, at any rate, take advantage of that uh, to, to bring people up from the south to concerts mm -hmm. or you know, whatever. The penny's dropping with me, I think, a bit that we may have come from, you know, borders. You won't even notice them. There won't be any any hard borders. And I don't think there will be hard borders in the way we think of them. Yeah. But I'm beginning to realise that it's actually quite sensible to think about the practicalities in terms of how much we can do to manage the border for our benefit. And I don't think it's really in anybody's interest to pretend there won't be a border. Yeah. There will be something. It might not yeah. be at the border. There will yeah. be some degree of customs controls. Indeed. In, indeed. I mean, in a way, it's what uh, Boris Johnson did, didn't he? He tried to pretend it would all be fine. It would be really, there's no border. It will all work fine. And then, of course, gets into a lot of trouble. The practicalities give the Northern Ireland, you know, farmers and businessmen a lot of advantages, but, mm. you know, it wasn't just what he was trying to, to make out it was. Cooperation is going to be key, yeah. and particularly with the England-Scotland land border, why would it be in England's interest to make difficulties that don't need to be there? Exactly. An increasingly isolated England, why would they not want to trade with us? Why would they yeah. not want their people yeah. to carry on being able to flow both ways across the border. So the other thing that this has thrown up for me is, you know, it's not as if the day after we vote yes in a referendum, that suddenly 
things happen or don't happen at the border. We, we'll then be in, what, one or two years worth of negotiations with the London government about formalising it. In those two years, lots of things need done. And, and one of the things that need done is to start putting in place what we need so that, yeah, the, the customs checks can happen in the depot when the lorry arrives, there's going to be a transition period. And in that transition period, well, there's a whole whack of things that are going to, work, going to have to get done. But we've got time to do that. Um, as of right now, we don't know who the Prime Minister of the UK is. So we don't actually know what their attitude's going to be. And, you know, the, the idea that they're going to add difficulties on top of what's already going to be a huge upheaval. Um, yeah, so that whole yeah. negotiation might be conducted in a more cooperative spirit. But also, yeah. I would like to think that we're also in negotiations with the EU. And whether we're back in a bit of it, whether we're back in all of it, whether we're on that transition, whether we've got some kind of associate membership, I think is also a possibility. All that can help us along our way and could also help in the negotiations, I yes. think, as well with, it, with yes, that's the rest right. of the UK. But yeah. we're going to focus on the EU in part two of these look at uh, the borders and the reality of it. So we'll come back to that position. That's and good. I've said to you before, Fiona, it's like I make an effort and I, I sort of understand the difference between um, EFTA and EU. And then I also know there's the EEA and then I, I, I kind of get it. And then I forget it again. And then I, I go back and I remind myself and pretty soon after that, I've forgotten again. So... Um, I, I bet I'm not the only person that that happens to. Yeah. So it would be really good next time just to go into that with a, with, with a bit more detail. Great. So everyone, hope you enjoyed it, got a better idea of some of the minutiae around uh, running and managing a, a border well, but also from, from Ruth, just uh, an idea of what it's like being there on the ground and uh, mm -hmm. dealing with it in your day-to-day -day life. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to Scottish Independence Podcasts from the Indie Life Podcast team. Join us every Friday with sometimes a bonus episode midweek as well. Subscribe, that's always a good way to not miss anything. We've also just opened up our public channel on our Discord chat server. So if you'd like to join that, you can chat with any of the team and anybody else who's in there. We'll put the link in the notes and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks again for listening and please share this with anybody you think would be interested. Bye now.